Shush! Thank you, Andrew. Quiet now or you will be dewy decimated. <clears throat> Welcome to the second set. I hope you had a pleasant break. Um, our first guest in this set is the sort of person who makes life very difficult for us librarians. <clears throat> sorry, sorry, did somebody speak? Um, he makes life very difficult for, for us librarians trying to classify his books because the trans, the, well, they are traverse um, <clears throat> categories, shall we say. He's a writer, filmmaker and photographer based in London. His films have been shown on the BBC and Channel 4, never mind. And his photographs have been used as album book covers and on bottles of beer um, when he's not taking photos. He's inside writing screenplays and short stories. So his material is usually he takes a photograph and then he bases a story on the photograph and the book combines the two. So where do I put that? 700s photography, 800s literature? I don't know. Makes my life very difficult. <clears throat> so uh, normally he would have his photographs projected, but we don't quite run to that at Book Jam. So he's going to stand and show and tell. So please welcome... Uh, Stephen Leslie, whose book, Sparks, Adventures in Street Photography, is also available to buy at the bookstore, of course. So here we are, Stephen. Hello. Um, yeah, uh, so as was sort of explained, I would usually have a projector projecting uh, the photograph that I've written the story about, but I haven't got that, so what I've done... I've blown the photograph up and stuck it on some cardboard. So no, no expense has been spared. And so the, the, my, my book, like um, was just said, is, is called Sparks. And it's 80 photographs that I've taken over the last 20 years. None of the photographs are set up. And then I write fictional short stories to go with the real photographs. So this is a photograph I took um, on holiday in America. And this is a story I've written to go with it. Pity the poor balloon seller, seriously considering a vasectomy due to the horrors of his job. Every weekend, at party upon party, he witnesses the worst-behaved children imaginable. Miniature armies of spoilt Jadens and Callistas, whose parents are seriously trying to raise them without ever using the word no, lest it damage their rampaging egos. He has been punched in the testicles by a four-year-old boy for not inflating a giant lion balloon fast enough. He has stood agog as a six-year-old girl spat at her mother because she wanted a freaking rainbow balloon arch like Vanessa's, but bigger. And unbelievably, the mother apologised to her child and then paid him extra to make it happen. His wife wonders why their sex life has gone off the boil. Why, when they're making money, he seems so unhappy and exhausted. He feels he's being worn down. The other day, between jobs, he fell asleep standing up. Each arm was raised by a handful of balloons so that he resembled a slumbering Christ. He only snapped out of it when an angry parent rang his phone, wanting to know why his precious offspring was being kept waiting. And so it is we find him this Sunday, resigned to his fate and contemplating having his tubes snipped or tied off like a balloon, rather than risk adding to the shrill carousel of modern childhood. And this next party promises to be a humdinger. They have ordered over a hundred balloons. He sighs and takes the first 25 from the van, he has learnt from bitter past experience never to turn up empty-handed. It is a beautiful, sun-dappled day, yet he fails to enjoy it. Does not even notice the play of green, white and yellow against the tarmac 
that has turned him into a walking stained glass window. He finds the address and rings the bell. After a moment, the door is opened by a tiny woman in her 80s, the grandma, he assumes. Hello, I'm here for, he checks the name on his order sheet, Arthur. The old woman smiles and gestures for him to come inside. He follows her down the hallway, slightly bemused by the lack of noise. There is no screaming of children at play, no music or any of the usual party sounds. The old woman reaches a set of double doors and slides them apart. He stops and almost lets his balloon slip his, balloon slip his grasp. In front of him are at least 30 other pensioners, and there, in the centre of a room, surrounded by wreaths, is a coffin. He stares until the old woman taps him on the wrist. Please, could you tie them to the casket, she asks. In a daze, he carries out her instructions. Do you think 100 will be enough? asks the woman, as he attaches the first 25. Enough for what? he asks, utterly bemused. To lift him, of course, she replies. Arthur always had a mischievous streak, and this was his dying wish. Everybody here's chipped in, and he didn't weigh much at the end, so he hoped 100 should do it. He nods his head and mumbles a reply, then goes out to the van to fetch the helium canister. Without realising it, he breaks into an excited trot. In the end, it only took 87. He got a standing ovation when the simple pine box broke free of gravity and started hovering. He felt like a magician looking out at an appreciative crowd, their wrinkled tortoise faces full of wonder and genuine delight. Arthur's widow hobbled over and gave the coffin a push and watched it float smoothly over to where an old man was waiting to bat it back. The balloon seller lingered for a few moments, then slipped away, leaving them playing ping-pong with a floating coffin and feeling happier than he had in months. Optimistic, his spirits actually lifted. Thank you very much. Marvellous. Thank you so much. Now, Lucy Turter-George in the room. Right. Excellent. Lovely, lo lovely, lovely, lovely. So pleased you're here. Um, now, Lucy uh, had her first novel published in October this year by Starhaven Press, and she finally feels like an infant phenomenon at the age of 50, which is, is rather young in my, in my opinion, but there we are. <clears throat> her novel Three Women draws on Lucy's upbringing as part of a theatrical family. And her marriage to a Sicilian-American tells the story of three resourceful women who free themselves from society's expectations. <clears throat> now, I, I do know Lucy of old, because she was often in my library, before she'd written any novels. Um, she used to come to the library and she'd get through books like anything. Every other day she'd be in here borrowing a new book. And I used to say, how do you get through these books so quickly, Lucy? And she said, well, I am a ghost writer, Glenda. So, yes, um, that was decades of copy, copy editing and copywriting, ghostwriting, and she's finally got here as a novelist. She also performs as Lucy Lyrical. So please welcome to the stage Lucy Lyrical Tertia George. Hello. Thank you very much. Um, I'm very excited to be here. I, I've come to the Bricks and Book Jam before, but never saw myself up on stage. So this is my first novel, and I thought... Um, I'll just start at the beginning, that's all right. Uh, it's in three sections, and this is the first section. It's called Josephina. Grandma wanted Buddy dead. She took the framed photo off the wall and carried it to the little table by the window. 
Strips of plastic on the air conditioner slapped and clapped as the machine shuddered its cool breath through the apartment. The sun was just coming up on Flatbush. Grandma took a pair of nail scissors and drew around the back of the frame so that she could remove the photograph. The picture showed her family dressed formally at the confirmation of her grandson. Once it was out of the frame, she opened the scissors as wide as she could and pressed one sharp point into Buddy's eye. With little snips, she edged around the image of his head, missing her daughter, her grandson, and the priest. She knew this would work. She knew she could bring about somebody's death. She had done it with her own husband. Sal had been a lazy, violent idiot, and she'd wished him dead for such a long time. Eventually, she had made it happen. One night, she had regained consciousness on the kitchen floor, with her arm twisted uncomfortably beneath her, and she'd made a decision. She'd pulled herself up, and her eyes rested on the photo booth image of Sal stuck to the refrigerator door. She lit the stove, and holding the photo by its corner, placed it over the flame, talking in a whisper. After that, it was only a matter of days before Sal was dead. Killed in an accident at the dockyard. He didn't have a job, so there was no good reason why he was hanging around that place that night. Two weeks later, some guy came to her home with an envelope of cash. He said that it was for her, and she shouldn't go to the cops under any circumstances. She had no intention of talking to the police. She never had learned more than a few words of English, and she hadn't yet met a policeman who spoke Sicilian. Besides, this was a blessing. She took the money and felt happier than she'd been for half a lifetime. Grandma swept the pieces of Buddy's photo into her hand and walked into the kitchen. Cupping the fragments of the man that she hated, her daughter's husband, she turned the knob on the stove and pressed the ignition. Each piece of paper disappeared into ash before it hit the flame. Noises from the street had started, little brats going to school, cars honking. She'd better get ready. Maureen would be here soon, and she had to pretend to be asleep. She mistrusted Maureen. She mistrusted all the carers her daughter had arranged for her, and Maureen was no different, maybe even worse. She was cheerful and pushy, trying to get Grandma to leave the apartment, clean out the back closet, engage in conversation. Sometimes Maureen even sang as she pushed the mop across the kitchen floor. Grandma found that if she slumped in the chair and pretended to sleep, Maureen was more likely to leave her alone. Grandma worried about stealing. Everyone steals from little old ladies. But she'd taken precautions. All the money she had should roll into cigarette-sized tubes and sewn into the hems of skirts and jackets. And the jewellery she owned was stored at the bottom of a jar of flour in the kitchen shelf. Later that morning, the phone rang and Maureen brought it over to Grandma where she sat in the big chair. It was her daughter, Angela. Buddy was missing. Summer bitch, fucking sheet. Grandma liked to say her curses in Italian but swear in English. No, Ma, said Angela. It's not a woman this time. He left his keys, his wallet and everything. Just wasn't here when I woke up. He's disappeared. Grandma listened to her daughter's distress until the conversation ebbed into silence. I don't know what to do, Ma, Angela said. What do I tell the kid? When Grandma, when grandma hung up, she smiled. Then, in huge vomiting gasps, she started laughing, laughing like she hadn't done in years. Maureen stuck her head in from the kitchen. Well, praise the sweet Lord, Josephina. It's great to see you laughing. Thank God for bringing joy into this house. Thank you.
Thank you, Lucy. Now, our next reader is a very special person. Um, in fact, uh, I was very excited when I first read this lineup. I didn't have my glasses on, and I thought it said we were going to have Zelda Fitzgerald this evening, which would have been terribly exciting. But it turns out it's, it's two different people. Um, but it is still very exciting. We have our very own founder of Book Jam, Zelda Riando. Zelda, as you know, lives in South London, in Brixton, in fact, with her two daughters and four cats. There's a woman after my own heart. Just the four, but you're getting there, dear. <clears throat> and uh, she's founded this very event we're at tonight. And uh, she's written two novels, Capuscriptium Fukushima Dreams, which I'm sure you can buy at the bookstore tonight, and currently working on a third. So please welcome our very own Zelda Riando. Hello everyone. I'm glad Stevie, uh, Glenda, Glenda, our lovely librarian, is the same height as me because I don't have to see the mic shuffle. Uh, so I was going to read to you from Fukushima Dreams, but I'm quite excited because I just submitted a new book last week. It's written! So I'm going to read you, read from that. It's called Good Morning, Mr. Magpie, and pretty much it's the first time I've ever read this, so bear with me. Messenger. The air is cold and full of damp. No friendly thermals to lift me amidst the cliffs and outcrops of the human city. There, rising above the trees that surround it, the block I'm aiming for. On an upper floor, an open window beckons. The package I carry is damp, clamped tightly in my beak. I glide down to the windowsill, tuck in my wings and rest a moment. Inside, all is quiet and dark. No sign of the one that lives there. I hop once, twice, towards the window. Then I'm on the ledge. I cock my head, listening. Silence. And behind me, the sounds of the city, the hum of traffic, the distant wail of a siren. I tune it out, listening ever more intently. Now I can hear a faint but regular sound of breathing as of one asleep. Good. I hop once more and I'm inside. I deposit the package and with it a weight of obligation, of need. I flick my feathers once, twice, and then I'm gone. Tail feathers spread to catch the breeze. Back to the highest fork of a London plain where my nest is, and where I'll find shelter from the incoming storm. Ronald. She gave him a rope, coiled neatly in a white plastic bag. She told him he would know when to use it, and what to use it for. That the knowledge would come to him when he was ready to take the final step. Did you know the dark compact he'd made with his soul? That he was buying Eva time, or was he past caring? His body felt like a shackle, tied to the heavy earth. He longed to fly. Communicating directly with the magpies, his last thoughts are theirs. He's already soaring above the city, wings free. Ronald won't be missed by many. He'd become very standoffish with his neighbors as he got more involved with Eva's game. It changed the way he heard the world saw the world, 
His eyes had sharpened until he could pick out the tiny details blocks away, the smallest motion triggering his senses. His hearing had changed. High and low frequencies lost to him now. In compensation, he found he could understand the calls of birds. The chatter and squawks of green parakeets became a vast conversation conducted at the level of the treetops. Wood pigeons cooing their love, threatening their rivals. Songbirds warning of predatory ravens. And magpies, so many magpies, they called to him. It was time to join them, to become one with the flock. With his new vision, he can see that the balcony is empty, can sense the deserted stairwells. He will not be interrupted. As he stands on the edge of the balcony, the rope looped loosely around his neck is almost as though the wind is gathering in his feathers. He can feel weather front approaching. He's more magpie now than human. When he finally steps off the balcony, it's more like taking flight than falling. My goodness, thank you, Zelda. <clears throat> and our final act of the set is a lady named Alice Fitzgerald. Alice, are you here? Yes, 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 jolly good. <clears throat> now, Alice is a freelance writer and journalist and has been published in magazines and websites including Hello Magazine, Good Housekeeping, and Half a King Post. Now, Alice, dear, if you work on these magazines, can you please try to get them to sort out the classified ads because they're really not very well classified, you know. Um, I've, I've read these classified ads in magazines and they have things like a six-foot TV with a large knob in the, in the personal section, which should clearly be in the electrical goods section, you know. Dreadful, dreadful classifying. Anyway, <clears throat> back to, anyway, back to, thankfully, Alice is now has written a novel. Her debut novel is called Her Mother's Daughter, and uh, she was born in London and now lives in Madrid and runs a regular open mic, but she's back and forth to London all the time. So here she is in South London. Please welcome Alice Fitzgerald. Hello, good evening. Thanks for having me. Um, my novel, I find it really hard to describe what it is, which is a terrible beginning. Uh, so I'll just read what it says here. It's an authentic portrait of an Irish family with deep secrets. It's set between London and Ireland across two decades. And the excerpt that I'm reading tonight is told from the little girl called Claire. And they've been out for family dinner and they've just got back and they've put some music on. Mummy takes out the records from the expensive cabinet we're not allowed to touch, with the wine glasses you can see behind the glass. Me and Thomas sit and watch. Daddy comes in and moves the sofa backwards while we squeal and roll around because we're still sitting on it. Mummy looks up and laughs. What should we put on, she asks. Daddy tells her the name of a record and takes his and her coats off and puts them on the back of the sofa. When she has a record, she goes over to the player and puts it on the wheel with the pin on one side. She slides the pin until there's a crackle and then the music starts up and she goes over to Daddy. He pulls her to him and puts his arm around her. They dance. 
Thomas and me get up and hold hands. We swing them from side to side with the beat of the music. We all put our hands up in the air and wave them in time to the words. Then when the next bit starts, Mummy sings to us that we're her angels and she loves our smile and our everything. And we all hold hands and put them in the air again. We sing at the tops of our voices. Mummy is smiling and her eyes are shining. And in moments like this, I am so happy. I run over to her and throw my arms around her. She takes my hands from around her waist and lifts them in the air. So we're holding hands, waving them to her, then to me, then to her. She spins me around and around and then lets me go. I sway and the room goes blurry until my hands find hers again. Kids, would you like a chocolate biscuit? Yeah, we chorus. I jump up and run to the kitchen. Thomas runs after me. Daddy turns around. Maybe we should put them to bed. Do you two want to go to bed? She asks, smiling, as we come back with our biscuits. No, we shout, jumping up and down, holding hands. I'll go on, Michael. Let's have a drink and some fun. She hands him a glass and sways to the music that starts up. I watch Daddy from the arm of the sofa while I eat my biscuit. I feel a teeny bit guilty because it'll go straight to my hips, but it's my Saturday night treat, so I decide it's okay. Just this once. Mummy holds her drink in one hand and a cigarette in the other, and as she turns from one side to the other, her flowy pink dress swishes from side to side. Twirl around, Mummy, I say. I love watching her twirl in her dresses, love watching them sail through the air like she's a picture on the front cover of a magazine. Her lips are still shining bright red. I want my lips to be as red as hers. Mine are thin and pale like penny sweets. I watch her and her dress swirling around her and I can't wait to be like her when I grow up, to colour in my eyelids, draw black frames around my eyes, have bright red lips... Let's dance, she says, taking one of my hands, then one of Thomas's, and leading us in a circle in the open space between the fireplace and the sofa. She lets go of our hands every now and again to get her drink until the glass is empty. Her face is flushed and her eyes are big and shiny, the way they get when she's been drinking. She sings in time to the words, and I'm sure the sound of her voice is travelling through the whole house. We watch them dance together, Daddy spinning Mummy around under his arm, her dress rising, falling. They laugh and we laugh, and I copy Daddy and spin Thomas around too. It's late and we're lucky to still be up, to be allowed to stay and watch them dance like she's a film star. The song finishes, the small pin hangs in the air. I'm sliding the needle to the edge when I hear them whisper. I turn and see Mummy's lips are white and thin and her eyes are cold. She's not smiling anymore or twirling. Daddy looks tired. They're back again, she hisses. What do you mean, Daddy says. I bend down, open the cabinet doors and put all the records in, careful not to touch them. You know what I mean. Riddled, riddled she is. Her head's crawling with them. How are we going to take her to meet my mother and father like this? I turn around and Mummy's pointing at me, her eyes big and round, her arms straight in the air, her lovely bright red nail pointing straight at me. Then she puts her hands in her hair and scratches at her head. It reminds me my own head is itchy. I scratch it. Calm down, says Daddy. I will not calm down, she screams. I walk across the room behind the sofa and duck under the dining table. All I can think about is that my hair is crawling, riddled. 
I think of things that crawl, maggots. I shut my eyes tight and scream with all my might to drown out her voice. I scream and scream and don't stop even when my throat hurts. I imagine the fat maggots I've seen on the end of a fishing rod crawling in my hair. I keep my eyes squeezed tight shut and my arms wrapped around my knees. I don't look up when daddy comes to talk to me and I don't come out even though he asks me to. I wriggle like I'm a snake when he tries to grip my hand. My chest is popping in and out. He passes me my pump. I put it in my mouth and breathe it in while I count to three, then repeat. What are they going to think of me now, my granny and granddad who I've never met before? They will surely dip me in the river to catch fish with all the maggots in my hair. Thank you. Thank you, Lucy. <clears throat> Lovely. Now, I mentioned classified ads earlier, and I mentioned how awful they are. They're really, really bad, the classified ads in the magazine. So during the break there, I just wrote my own. Would you like to hear it? Would you like to hear <clears throat> Glenda Reed's classified ad? Okay, here we are. <clears throat> Dewey-eyed librarian, Sagittarian, vegetarian, libertarian. Long overdue for a fine romance, so shelve your fears and take a chance. You can read me like a book, so come and take a closer look. Look me up, look me down, cover to cover. Take me out on the town, book lover. <clears throat> File me under loose leaf, but don't leave me undefiled. You're bound to enjoy yourself, so don't leave me on the shelf. Like Onan the librarian, I have issues about being alone, and I wish you would page me. For a date, don't label me, don't be late, and we'll be fine. I'll take off your jacket. I'll run my index finger down your spine. You'll caress my tresses, and as you take off my reading glasses, I'll give you headings from the Library of our Congress. Shh. Right. So there we are. <clears throat> And after the break, I'll tell you about all the answers I got. In the meantime, please enjoy our lovely DJ, Andy Carstairs. Did you notice, by the way, he was just playing my favourite tune during my last poem there? My very favourite piece of music, which is, of course, John Cage's 4 minutes 33. You might have noticed. This is on, yeah, yes. My, my very favourite piece of music. And so, um, while we have some more lovely music from Andy Carstairs, don't forget to buy a book, buy a raffle ticket, buy a drink. See you later. See you in 10 minutes.